Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is uh, Robert Verbruggen, who is a policy writer with National Review. Uh, he's been on the program before, but welcome back, Robert. Good to be here. Thank you. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about, um, well, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus. Uh, all podcasts are about the coronavirus now. Um, in fact, I listen to, you know, I listen to many podcasts, um, including... I listened to a podcast of a guy in India, and I also listened to a a traditionalist Catholic podcast, and the most recent episodes both were about coronavirus. (laughs) So it's kind of taken over everything. Um, But we're going to be talking about uh, kind of a common topic of discussion, particularly uh, related to the coronavirus lately, which is we just had, and we're recording this on Thursday. Um, so who knows what will happen over the next four days, but we just had a, uh, the unemployment numbers have come out, uh, there's 3.3 million, uh, new unemployment claims. There's a massive bailout bill that's passed, uh, I believe, or hopefully will be passed by the time this comes out. There are, you know, numerous states have lockdown orders, schools are closed, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, all in order to try and halt the spread of the coronavirus. And this has led, I think, to a lot of kind of back and forth over, you know, the, the, the value of uh, saving lives versus, you know, what are the economic costs? Are we risking, you know, permanent economic harm? Uh, is the, to quote the president, is the cure worse than the disease, right? And, you know, this is a controversial question. I know there are some people who would say you shouldn't even discuss this, right? You know, uh, you should just try and do whatever you can to minimize the loss of life. Um, and, you know, we, we can talk about that. I, I, Not our lieutenant governor. He's perfectly happy right. to have that conversation. That's right. Yes. The lieutenant governor of Texas uh, went on the Tucker Carlson show. And uh, I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize his remarks, but, you know, it. he did, I think, say that, uh, old old people should be willing to sacrifice in order to keep the economy running, and if that meant that you know he had to die or whoever had to die uh, in order that his grandkids, you know, would have a a good economy, then he was willing to do that. So I'm paraphrasing, but I, I I think that's faithful to the gist of it. So anyway, so this yeah, this is obviously a conversation that has been going on, and I think that if we're going to have this conversation. It is useful to talk specifics as opposed to just kind of hazy generalities because, you know, uh, if you're going to try and balance costs uh, or, you know, do trade-offs between uh, people dying for the virus versus economic harm, you know, you can't really do that in the abstract. You have to, you have to be saying, well, okay, how much is the how much is the harm, economic harm, and how many lives are we talking about, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think, and you, the reason why we're having you on, Robert, is that you've written a couple posts on this uh, subject. 
uh, which I, just speaking for myself, as a as a doom and gloom guy on the coronavirus a little bit, uh, I thought they were actually pretty pretty mild and reasonable. I know that they got some pushback, mostly for just kind of broaching the subject, but um, maybe we could start by just talking a little bit in general about what cost-benefit analysis is, how it works, and whether, you know, because this is, this is something that we do in other areas of policy, uh, and it is controversial there too sometimes. So like, is it, is it legitimate to even think about the problem in these terms? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's inevitable to think about the problem in these terms, um, because if we don't think about the problem in these terms, we end up with this sort of assumption that any policy that could save a life um, is a good policy. And I, don't, I don't think that's true. Anytime you have economic regulations, environmental regulations, um, safety regulations, there's a trade-off to be made between you know how much safety you're getting, how much human life you're preserving, uh, versus you know what you're doing to you know the cost of the product, or um, you know just making it impossible to to live your life. I mean, if, if all we cared about was preserving human life, we would drive around in tanks if we drove at all, um, and we you know might might never really leave the house. Um, so, I mean, I think making these sorts of trade-offs is not um, as scary as people sometimes make them out to be. It's something that, that we do every time we, you know, strap our kid in the backseat of the car and, and get on a highway. Um, we we put ourselves at risk sometimes to achieve other things that we value. Yeah, that's right. I know I was, I saw someone on Twitter the other day who was talking about the cost of the shutdown and, you know, the risk of human life. And he said, well, you know, we lose, you know, we have the... Uh, 40, 50,000 traffic fatalities every year. As you mentioned, we could make 20, you know, require armor on the cars or 25 minute speed limit on highways or whatever. Um, and we do actually have a uh, agency, the, you know, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I think I got that acronym correct. Um, that sounds right. Yeah. And, you know, so we have that this agency whose job it is to try and uh, reduce traffic fatalities, but in order in doing that, they use you know they use a cost benefit analysis and they assign a value to every life saved. And if there are measures that could be implemented that would save lives, but at uh, a cost beyond that point, you know they don't they don't do it. So I, I mean, I think you know if you're talking about a limit case, it's hard to see how you get around that and and make policy. I will say, and we can, I want to, I want to get into like, you know, some specifics some you know, some actual numbers here. Uh, but I will say that when I heard this, I did, I did, I did the roughest of rough calculations, which is, you know, the, the number that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration uses for saved lives is, I think it's like 9.7 million per life, something like that. Um, so about 10 and I thought, well, you know, if you have these, uh, you know, there are projections that if you were to let the virus just spread, uh, that could result in about a million excess deaths, uh, in the United States. Um, that's, you know, there are projections above that and projections below that, but you know, that's, that's kind of like a, uh, a reasonable case, just looking at what the fatality rate is and and how likely it would be to spread everywhere. And so, you know, if I if you plug that in with the ten million per life figure, 
that gets you about, I mean, that's $10 trillion, which is about half the U.S. annual GDP. So that's that's a pretty big number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not even counting everything else. So it, I think that would be interesting in these conversations is it, it kind of clarifies, okay, maybe a lot of maybe maybe a lot of the measures are cost effective maybe these lockdowns really are cost effective and it would also it also helps show if they're not cost effective why that is like what what do you have to assume in terms of the costs and the you know, how many people would die etc uh, for a measure to not be justified right yeah, I mean, I think it's worth it. Did you want to talk a little bit about the different measures that we have and, and where they come down in terms of numbers? Because um, I, I think yeah. in my post, what I laid out is that if you use different different methods, you can get some pretty radically different um, uh, right d- different conclusions. Um, so, so you know, as, as you said, there's this this value of a statistical life that a lot of the agencies use, um, and what this is based on is they look at data on people who switch jobs. Um, so if you switch jobs, you know, to a to a job that has a lower mortality risk, um, you might be willing to take less pay. And if you switch jobs to a job that has higher mortality risk, you're going to be demand to be paid more. Um, and, and from that data, they can kind of infer how much people are valuing their own lives at. And that's where you get these numbers. Um, yeah, I've seen a variety of estimates in different different agencies and slightly different ones, but somewhere in the realm of seven to ten million dollars per life is what what you get from that. Um, <clears throat> And as you said, if, if the uh, you know the various estimates we have of the virus's toll are accurate, and you know maybe a million lives could be saved by having these you know aggressive measures against it, um, you know you take you know that you know nine or ten uh, million dollars per life, you multiply it by the million lives saved, um, and you know you end up with you know roughly half of our GDP for a year. So that that that's a pretty steep shutdown to to get to kill off half of our GDP. Um, unless you're one of, you know, there are some some economic doomsayers who are saying this is going to throw us into a protracted you know, recession that could cost us, you know, uh, you know, twenty trillion dollars over the long haul um, if we don't bounce back. But I, I think most of the the people um, making economic predictions are saying it's going to be much less than that. There's going to be a brief contraction that's going to be severe, um, but then it's going to bounce back. So, so I think I think you're absolutely right that the value of a statistical life method clearly says that this is going to be cost effective. Um, one of the interesting things about this virus, though, is that the death the deaths are very, very skewed toward the elderly. And right. one of the sort of blind spots of the um, you know, the value of a life method is that it simply treats everybody's life equally. Um, and that that's a nice thought, but I think most of us, you know, especially those of us who have kids, um, don't think that's quite right. You know, I, I would do a lot more to save the life of a, a child than I would do to save the life of somebody who's you know already you know you know eighty or ninety years old and doesn't have long to live anyway. To me, if I if I have to make the choice between killing a toddler and killing an elderly person, um, you know, through some policy choice that I have to make, that's not that hard of a decision. Um, so, so one of the other methods that um, you know policymakers and people who are researching drug efficacy use is called the the quality adjusted life year. And, um, and what this basically says is we're not going to try to value a life. What we're going to try to value is a year of a life. Um, and there are a lot of different methods that you can use for this. There's some that use you know, surveys asking people how much you know, they'd be willing to pay to, to stay alive for longer. Um, there are you know, kind of similar to the statistical life estimates where you look at you know, workplace safety sort of trade-offs that people make and infer from that you know, what they think, um, what, how much they value a, a year of life or the, the quality of their life, um, you know, various uh, estimates of that nature. Um, and, and there you end up with a, a somewhat wider range of estimates. Um, I've seen estimates ranging from about 100,000 to, especially about 100,000, 250,000. Some go as high as 300, 
300,000. Um, per year. But if you say, yeah, per year, for, for, for a year of life. Um, yeah, so if you say, you know, you, you have $125,000 per year of life and you're saving on average maybe a decade of life from, from this virus because the, the population is skewed so old. Um, and I haven't seen great data on that, but that seems reasonably like a reasonable ballpark guess right now is that, you know, the typical person who's dying of, of this virus has about maybe 10 years to live, um, maybe a, a, a bit longer than that. Um, you, then you only end up with $1.25 trillion from that, extensive, mm-hmm. that, that extension of life. Um, and obviously, that's not the end of the conversation because you have all of these other problems that this virus is causing. There are all kinds of people, um, many more people, in fact, who are going to be hospitalized, who are going to end up on ventilators. Um, you know, there's going to be overwhelming the ventilator capacity, so people who need them don't get them, and the death rate goes even higher. Um, other people who need, uh, you know, hospital capacity or ventilators who don't have corona are going to be affected because you have uh, you know, all the hospitals jam-packed. So you know, I, I, I think it's likely that you still end up with a decent cost-benefit trade-off there. You know, but certainly if you're starting at 1.25 trillion instead of um, you know, 10 trillion, that, that's a very different conversation we're having if we're trying to trade off the cost and the benefits. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I do wanna to highlight two things that I think that are uh, important. One, if you talk about how do you, you know, what the number should be per, per life saved, right? There's an element that can get into like philosophical, you know, moral questions. And the, as you, as you note, uh, when, when these measures have been, estimates have been developed, they, they do try to not just kind of pick a number out of the air or, so, you know, something, but they try and derive it from what people actually uh, think and do, you know, so they're trying to make them objective in a sense in that, uh, you know, like if people are willing to take, you know, if we know that people are willing to take this much more risk of dying in order to get this much pay, then we can like derive what the value of life was or use surveys or other things. Uh, so they, they, they try and be, you know, uh, get get the numbers in a way that doesn't like imply they're they're just deciding you know i like people i don't know uh i don't really like people that much so maybe maybe you know maybe fifty thousand or you know i love uh, you know i i really love kids you know so i'll give them an extra you know or mets fans i really like so i'll give them extra bump right it doesn't it doesn't they don't do it like that and then the the other thing that i really liked about your post uh, that I thought was interesting is that you weren't just including the deaths, but you were also, you know, if you have, in addition to say a million people dying, a hundred, I mean, uh, 10 million people who have to be hospitalized, of course, uh, that's, that's a big economic cost right there because A, there's the cost of the hospitalization, but then B, those people aren't working, right? (laughs) You know, they're not, uh, they're not, you know, and other people who are sick, uh, that's going to be a big, big, big hit as as well. But you're right that a lot of it, um, you know, uh, both on the uh, how much you value, you know, how, like how much you quantify each life, and then um, also uh, some of these other other factors, uh, and how many people are going to die if you let it spread. You can have I mean, the, the ranges can be pretty big. 
I, I mean, yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've, um, you know, been been digging a little bit more in, into a lot of these these different numbers, um, and, I, and I think the biggest problem right now is just that there's such a range for all, all these things right now. Um, what, to me, the biggest open question right now is, um, you know, how much can this thing really, really spread yet? Um, you, have, you have different modeling coming out of different, you know, uh, you know, people who are working on this saying that different proportions of the people who get it are asymptomatic. Um, which could mean that a lot more people have already had this than have already had it, or a lot more people have already had it than we think. Um, and that's, uh, in a way, it's a bad thing because it means it's spread further than we realize, but in a way, it's a good thing because it means that the worst case scenario looks a lot less bad um, if a lot of the people who get it are just not going to have any symptoms and we're not even going to really know that they're sick. Um, that means a lot of people are getting immunity. Um, and we just don't know what there's right right now. I've been hearing a lot of talk about people working on it's called serology tests, where they measure the antibodies um, that people have built up if they've had it in the past. So we might have a good estimate soon of you know, what percentage of the population has had it um, and probably didn't even know about it if, if, if some of these theories are correct. But I mean, that's going to throw off all of these numbers. Every number I just said, you know, doesn't doesn't really add up the same way if um, you know the worst case scenario isn't you know millions of people dying. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, like, I guess the, the best case scenario would be if it turns out 90% of the population has already had it or whatever. And, and like, it's just the last few people who are, uh, who are getting sick or something. Um, that's, you know, like that's an exaggeration, but I, I do yeah. I do wonder, I mean, the, the issue that I, the, the, the reason that seems kind of implausible to me, uh, one of them anyway, is you do have countries like uh, Singapore or Taiwan or even now in South Korea where they have managed to uh, contain the outbreak, right? Mm -hmm. And it, you, you know, those are highly organized countries, but I mean, the way they, they're doing it, you know, they're, they're testing a bunch of people. And if, you know, uh, it seems to me that if, if the, virus were uh much much if you had like a you know the kind of for every person with symptoms there are 10 people without symptoms or what you know or 50 people without symptoms that you would need in order to get these numbers down to a reasonable level i don't know how that would those how containment would be able to function in in those places uh you know it seems like it would just be you would not be able to control the spread, right? Because they right, the, had it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the geographic concentration um, issue. There was that paper that came out. I mean, I think we're kind of talking about it without talking about it. That 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 basically said that if you take you know certain data that has been collected on the outbreak and you impose the assumption on it that you know, there's this extreme disparity where it's you know ninety nine to one or a thousand to one um, people who uh, get it are asymptomatic. Um, you can still run a model that makes the data look the way it looks. Um, I, I think that's way out of proportion. I don't. I don't think the those extreme estimates. Um, I mean, by that, that's that. That's the estimate that the UK may already have herd immunity. Basically, is, is that, that right? That, that, that right. I mean, um, yeah. But even if that's not true, uh, we don't know how many people are actually actually asymptomatic, and it can still vary vary a lot before we get to you know ninety nine to one. Um, and, right. and I think the, that variation is really important too, in terms of you know if we end up with you know eighty percent of the population getting it, you know this real doomsday scenario where we fail to control it, 
um, the death rate's going to look a lot different if, you know, 50% of people are asymptomatic, 75%, 25%. Um, and right now, we just don't have great numbers on it. And I hope, hope we get that pretty soon. Yeah. Here's another thing that I, another area that I would like to discuss is that right now, uh, the discussion seems to be uh, rather binary um, or nearly binary in that people talk about the options being either you have a uh, a lockdown, as they say, right? Although some of these lockdowns are less lockdowny than others, <laughs> it seems like. Um, but you have, you know, basically you try and do uh, very severe uh, restrictions in order to get the, in order to stop the spread, right? So, you know, schools closed, non-essential businesses closed, uh, people, you know, in some, in some cases, like in France, you know, you're not allowed to leave your house, like, except for, you know, unless you're going basically to the doctor or the grocery store, so on and so forth. And then the, the other option is, um, you know, basically, okay, well, Life just returns to normal. Everybody does uh, everything else. And between those two options, um, to me, uh, at least uh, for a short period, the lockdown seems like the more cost-effective option. But I do, you know, there is the question of, okay, is there there some other way you could uh, arrest and keep contained the spread of virus uh, that wouldn't that would be less economically costly than the lockdown right so some and, and you know uh, I, there have been a number of options that are ha, have been op- offered I haven't heard of anything that is workable in the short term <laughs> I mean, yeah you know hazmat suits for everybody <laughs> right well yeah i mean well so you know like i mean masks um yep and gloves masks and gloves masks right and gloves right yeah which you know uh after after having uh you know the authorities tell us at the beginning that it's point you know you shouldn't don't don't worry about masks because masks are actually ineffective and <laughs> people and, you know now it seems like there's been a bit of a turnaround where uh, people are like, well, actually, it would be, it would be great if everybody had masks, but, uh, uh, and I, I think it would be great if everybody used masks. Maybe that would work. Uh, well, and and, and on that masks. point, just for a second, just yeah. to, to pause on that for just a second, I think there's two sides of that equation, right? One is, if you're wearing a mask, there's a, I think it's like five fivefold. Uh, less likely to actually catch the virus, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that. Um, But that's one side of the equation. The other is if you are one of these asymptomatic people and you're wearing the mask, then you're also less likely to be spreading it. That's right. So it seems like there's a a massive improvement. Uh, Right. And, you know, some of that evidence, I guess, is is debated or whatever. But, yeah, it does seem like... I I think some of it's in the lab. So it's not like it's real world. Right. Correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, just just one thing about masks. I mean, I think um, there was, I think, a Surgeon General tweet that I think people really ran with um, that 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 said something really stupid, implying that they don't work. Um, they, they do work. Um, they they stop you from spreading it, and they they do somewhat re- reduce the, the chance that you get it as well. Um, to me, the problem with masks right now is that the healthcare workers don't have them. It's much more important right. for healthcare workers to have them than for the 
the average person to have them. So I, I think we really need to ramp up production so that we can get to the point where the everyday person can be wearing these masks without you know, essentially taking them away from the healthcare people. Um, you know, there's, there's a real shortage of them at hospitals right now, and that's really the number one priority. Um, and I think that kind of draws attention to, I, I really think we're in sort of a two-stage process here, where the first stage is um, we've got to get these numbers in control. Um, you know, certainly the very worst areas need to be locked down. Um, you, some of these governors locking down entire states, I mean, I think are, are running the risks that you're going to fatigue people in areas that haven't been hit by this yet um, before the virus actually comes to their area. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit worried about that. Um, but to me, the, the longer term goal here, um, the, eventually we'll get a vaccine, you know, one to two years from now. But but in the meantime, I think we can aspire to do what some of these other countries have done, you know, South Korea and whatnot, where you, you do practice some social distancing, but everybody wears a mask and you um, aggressively test people to, to find out who has mm-hmm. it and you trace the contacts of people who have it and test them, test everyone they come in contact with too, so that you can make mm-hmm. sure to isolate people who have it. That way you can have a functioning economy while keeping the virus under control. And that's where we got to get to, but that means getting the virus under control to begin with. Um, and really just ramping up production of all the stuff we need, the masks, the, the ventilators for the hospitals, especially, um, you know, and all these other supplies that we're going to need. And also just learn a lot more about this virus so we know you know, a better idea of where it's going and what we can expect to, to get out of our containment efforts. Yeah, and one of, one of the concerns I have is uh, sort, of, sort of in keeping with what you just said about the fatigue of keeping people sidelined too long, particularly in areas where they haven't really been hard hit. One of the concerns I have is, uh, you know, maybe this is just from, you know, watching too many, uh, you know, World War II movies where there's, uh, you know, the, the, you have the British uh, officers that are telling their their uh, their their soldiers in a, a prison camp that they have to keep going out there and, and building uh, gardens and such to keep the morale up. I just feel like we're not we're not giving people something to do. And I think that's why some of these very, very small efforts like um, going going home and uh, making masks. Like I know that um, we have a friend who's been on the show once or twice, uh, Lindsay Marie. She's gone and she's donated her time to making some of these surgical masks for a hospital that requested them in southern Indiana. And and those, you know, individuals making masks, there's there's not certainly not going to move the needle in places like New York. But if more people were doing these things, I think they'd feel like they're part of the solution. But also there's something to having sort of time on task where if more people were looking for small ways to contribute, that's when somebody might have that eureka moment of saying, you know what, here's a better way that we that we could be really producing more and and a much higher level. And I just feel like we're I don't feel like there's anyone who's really leading that charge of sort of getting individuals and getting industry sort of focused on how we take the, you know, the unused capacity we have and really go attack this. Not, you know, one part of it is, is, you know, that's one way to actually get more people back to work is getting them to work towards this solution, but also just give them a a sense of meaning that they're actually contributing somehow. Yeah, I I really agree with that. And just one little point that's a little off topic about the, the stimulus bill. Um, is that it's going to be sending out a lot of checks to people, including people who have not much been affected by this. Um, you know, as I said, you know, I, I'm a stay-at-home dad. My wife is a journalist as well. We're basically carrying on as before. Um, we're a little cooped up and, you know, cabin fever. Um, 
with uh, you know not being able to go out and take the kids to, to places where they can play with other kids and that sort of thing. But it really hasn't affected us economically. Um, and I think the, you know, one thing people in my situation should be sure to do is you know when they get those stimulus checks, you know find a way to, to donate that to help out rather than just throwing it in your bank account or, or spending it on yourself. I mean, I think there's that sense of sort of community and using, you know, putting all of this effort into the actual effort to, to fight what's happening here is, is really valuable. Right. You know, and even, even one of the very, very small type of things that you can do is, you know, if, if you, if you go to, you know, go out to dinner, I'm, you know, for, for instance, one of our favorite restaurants has like a 25% off, uh, price on uh, on all their takeout food right now. Like that's the last thing we want to hear is that they're giving us a discount. Like write write their tip for fifty percent. I mean, just you you know, if this is your favorite restaurant, these are the people that have been feeding you good food. Keep them in business. It's gonna be it's gonna be really hard on that sector in particular. I mean, there I realize there's so many other great ways that you can be contributing to people and co- contributing towards the cause, but that hospitality sector is is probably the hardest hit of just about anybody. Yeah. I, and I guess, uh, I, someone was talking the other day about, uh, you know, buying gift cards, right. Uh, for the restaurants or favorite eateries or whatever that you're not necessarily going to use right now, but we'll give them, uh, some cash right now and, um, would help them, you know, get over the, get over the bridge. Um, in addition to whatever help they might get from the uh, relief bill. One thing that I heard after they, you know, uh, after they passed the relief bill, it's like, so everyone was going to get the checks. And then turns out that if you don't, if you don't already have direct deposit set up with the IRS, it could be four months before you get your check. I, I've seen it on on Twitter. My I, I thought I saw some sort of update that they were going to be sending people debit cards, but I don't know how it ended up in the final final bill. Okay, unfortunately, it does seem kind of like a like a broader broader problem. You know, it's a lot lot of I would say broader problems with our government that are being highlighted by the response, uh, underwhelming response to the crisis uh, at all levels. Not that. Other Western countries don't. Many of them don't seem to be doing much better either. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know, it, it's very, it's discouraging. I would say. I, I have a macabre question, and uh, if we were already having the conversation about putting a uh, a value on human life, uh, I, I guess the maybe maybe to raise the political corollary, um, you know, worst case scenarios. I've heard people saying that we're going to have millions of people potentially die. Um, and there has been a, uh, you know, there's a, there's been a lot of I, I fear spread. I don't want to say fear mongering because we don't know how this is going to play out. Right. But it seems to me that there has been some very, very large numbers thrown out about what the American death toll will be. And I think a lot of those numbers tend to be, sort of hedged as when this is all said and done, which might be 18, 24 months out. But let's look at between now and November. There's been a lot of hype about how bad this will be. And at a certain level, Donald Trump is being, there's there's going to be almost a, uh, you know, a referendum on Donald Trump based on how he handles this, this crisis. 
at a certain level, aren't we all sort of putting a number as to, you know, out there as to what, what the death toll would be that is considered successful? I mean, most people aren't going to get into the, you know, the minutia of was he directly responsible for delays in the FDA, the CDC, they're going to, they're going to be judging him based on how many people actually died. And it seems to me that right now, if I look between my best guess of what's going to happen between now and uh, now and November, I think the, I think the media is setting him up for success. What do you all think about that? I I think that's true because there, I mean, we've been hearing a lot, um, about this Imperial College study that said, you know, put the number at 2.2 million. That right. number is a do nothing scenario where everybody goes about their business, right? That's not something that would actually happen. That's not a guess of how many deaths there will actually be. Um, but that really made its way around the media. And a lot of people are taking that as sort of a guess at what it's going to be. And then they're going to feel, you know, vindicated that it was all overhyped when it's less than that. Um, so, I mean, you, you take these huge numbers that have gone around that are based on scenarios, um, you just just how fast the, the virus would spread if we didn't do anything, um, even if you know, the scenarios might be right or wrong. But we are in fact doing things to stop the spread of it. So if we if we get it under control and keep it under control, I think that's going to look good for. Him. What do you? What's your you know sort of full picture of um, the way Donald Trump has handled this, the way the Senate, the way the House has handled this? Do you think that any you know coming into this a few months ago, I would have said. Donald Trump probably wins. The Republicans maintain the Senate. The Democrats maintain the House. Do you think that based on the way things have been happening with the crisis, but also with the, I don't want to call it, I know from the editors of National Review not to call this a stimulus package, uh, but this bailout, whatever you want to call this, based on sort of the um, you know, petty politics of that, do you think, and, and even this, uh, and the couple of Republican senators that may have had some inside information uh, and dumped their stocks, do you think that through the course of all of that, do you think that much has changed in terms of what you would project might happen in November? Oh, I'm, I'm really bad at, at uh, political um, uh, projections, um, so I, I wouldn't even want to go there. I am curious, though, now that you say that, I haven't checked like you know the betting markets and the you know, the president's favorability and things like that in a while. I would be kind of curious to see if they're, they're up or down. I thought, I thought, oh, like, I think Trump, I think Trump's, I think, well, I don't think it's his approval number, but I think it's like when, when asked the question of, or do you, you know, do you approve of the way Trump has handled the crisis? I think his numbers are like 60% this week. Yeah. I, I thought that I, I'd, I'd seen some you know, straight headlines that, that this, that his, uh, you know, his approval and his, you know, the way people were ask, answering poll questions about him had actually improved since this, Right. Um, had, had gotten underway. Um, he had some obvious missteps toward the beginning where he was downplaying it, or um, uh, there was that press conference where he misstated the policies, like three of the policies he was he was enacting, or, or something to that effect. Um, but but he's definitely got things together. I think a lot better than he had them. So you know, assuming you know the the actual death tolls, you know, are kept under control and, and continues to look reasonably competent, this could be this could be really good for him politically. Since everybody is staying home, I think it would be good. Something that we often ask at the at the end of our show is for people to give uh, movie or TV recommendations related to the topic. Um, and I think at this point, probably people are not interested in you know movies or TV shows that are related to uh, either uh, pandemics or cost benefit analysis, but. 
we are since we're all stuck at home, uh, we're probably looking for things to watch on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. So, are there? Uh, do you have some suggestions of things that you've been that you've been watching or that 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 uh, uh, have been good? Um, I'm trying to trying to think here. I haven't been watching as much TV as you might expect from from lockdown, um, but I have been finally catching up on uh, the, the last season of BoJack Horseman. Um, it's sort of this uh, adult animated show that actually has a surprisingly serious tone and is, is really well done in, in terms of drama and not just comedy um, that I've really liked. Um, uh, my wife and I also watched the uh, the documentary, the Netflix one, um, Don't, Don't F with Cats. It's a, sort of a true crime kind of thing that was, that was really interesting in a lot of ways. It's about, with uh, cats? Don't uh, You Know What F with Cats. Like meow cats? Yes, cats meow. <laughs> Okay, it's basically right. about these uh, um, these these folks on the internet who, who come across this snuff film of this guy killing these cats and start tracking down who he is and, and what happens after that. Um, that that's it's interesting both in true true in, in the sense of true crime and also just in the sense of you know kind of what are we encouraging when we take such an interest in these kinds of kinds of things, which actually kind of implicates the audience of the, of the show. All right. Well, if you're looking for something lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Doug, do you have any recs, recommendations? Uh, You know, actually, contrary to the premise of your question, uh, on one of the uh, streaming uh, services that we have, which is Stars, we were looking at what was trending and almost, you know, almost every one of the, the first items that were trending were some sort of zombie movie or contagion or some variation on that. So... I think that there's, I think there's some people that probably find a catharsis in that. I mean, we we just watched Shaun of the Dead, so uh, you know, I think there is an element of uh, catharsis in watching things like that. Or in my case, we also recently watched Midway because we knew how it would end up. You know, the idea that we're going to watch watch a a war movie where you have the ability to fight back and you know that you're going to actually win. That was cathartic as well. That felt good. So I would think that those are the types of things that a lot of people might be looking at. All right. Uh, well, I think uh, we'll end it there. Uh, Robert, uh, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.